Hello and welcome to Z3 News. I'm James Bailey and today is Monday, August 17th, 2020. And today I'm sharing with you a very shocking prophetic dream that I received on July 28th, a little over uh, two weeks, almost three weeks ago. And so I'm going to share the dream, which has three parts to it, and then I'm going to explain what I believe it means, and why it sounds so shocking to us today. And so, in the very first scene, I'm running through the woods with a group of other people. There's probably 10 to 15 of us, and we're running for our lives, uh, terrified, because we're being chased by killer robots. And not only were we being chased but some of us were being killed. I saw some of my friends falling uh, as they were taken out by these killer robots. And that was the end of the first scene. And then the scene changed, and I was inside of a large church. I was in the sanctuary. It was a mega church, and it was packed to capacity. Probably thousands of people were there. And I saw the pastor standing on the platform, and he was speaking to the people. Now, the thing about this was, is this is a church that back in the 1990s, back before it was a mega church, my family, we were members of this church. So I know this pastor, and I know, uh, you know, a lot about this church, even though I haven't visited it in over 20 years. But in any case, I'm just there as an observer and I'm watching as the pastor is sharing with the congregation and he's telling them that we've just acquired a new upgraded line of these killer robots and these new improved models are sure to be more effective in hunting down and killing these evil wicked heretics. And I knew when he said that that he was referring to me and my group who I had just seen being chased and running for our lives in the first scene. And as he shared this news with the congregation, I looked around and I saw the looks on the faces of the people, and they were so lit up with joy. They were so happy to hear what he was telling them. I saw them so excited and so happy and just looking at one another and rejoicing at this wonderful news. And that was the end of the second scene. And then in the third and final scene, I was alone in the woods running for my life again. But this time I knew I was being chased by these new improved models. And I knew I had to find a hiding place. And so as I'm desperately running as fast as I can, I'm also starting to search around to see if I can find a good place to hide. And that was when the dream ended. Now, the first thing that I'd like to point out about this is consider the numbers. At the beginning, there was a group, maybe 10, 15, there might have even been 20, but it was a small group of us. And some of us I saw being killed. But compare that to the second scene where the numbers were so large. This mega church was packed to capacity, and there were thousands of people there. And then compare that to the final scene 
where I was running through the woods alone, knowing that I've already seen with my own eyes some of my friends had already been killed. Our numbers were clearly dwindling down to close to zero, and the disproportionate size of the groups tells me that this was a picture of the remnant, and this remnant army was much smaller than the one that was persecuting it. And toward the very end, this remnant might be enduring times of isolation and hiding alone, seeking places to survive, having already been separated from family and friends and other members of the remnant. And so that's a very disturbing picture that none of us would ever want to go through. But I believe God wants us to see this, to hear this, because he wants us to make some choices now that will help us prepare for those days. And the next thing I want to point out is that in this dream, God used a church and a pastor who I'm familiar with that I have a relationship with in the past, that I would trust, that even to this day I would trust. I admire this pastor and his heart for God. And so as I woke up, I was uh, perplexed because I'm thinking, not him. There's no way. Why would he uh, lead a campaign of killer robots to uh, persecute, to exterminate Christians? It made no sense. But I believe God chose him and his church for this dream, not because they're literally the ones who would do it, because I don't believe they ever would, but it's because he wanted me to know the shock of how it's going to feel, because what's coming is a time of betrayal that we're warned about in the Bible that a time is coming when parents will betray their own children and children will betray their own parents and turn them over to the authorities to have them put to death. And so I believe God was trying to show me how shocking it's going to feel, the betrayal that comes from those whom we've loved, those whom we've fellowshiped with, and we'll hardly be able to believe that they would do such things. But that's the kind of thing that God wants us to be prepared for ahead of time. And why? Would so many Christians be so deceived as to turn against their brothers and sisters in the Lord? Well, we already see it happening today. We already see compromises in so many areas, such as allowing church members and even the leadership of the church, the church staff members, to compromise in the lifestyles that they live in turning away from sin according to the scriptures. And there are all sorts of compromises made in the message that's preached, in watering it down, and in the messages that are not preached, so as not to offend anyone. And I believe my dream is showing a future time where there will be such persecution against the true church that it will no longer be possible for them to operate openly and especially not possible to operate as a giant mega church in any community. So if there is going to be a mega church in the future, it's not going to be the true church. 
but it's going to be a compromised church that has made an ongoing series of compromise after compromise until they finally get to the point where they've opened wide the door of deception so wide that they have given permission to evil spirits to come in and bring spiritual darkness and deception over everyone in the place. And I believe there's another reason why the dream showed so many large numbers of Christians being deceived in these last days, and that is because of a disturbing finding that was uncovered through a survey that was just recently conducted by a Reverend Happy Caldwell, in which he surveyed 500 churches and uh, read their statement of faith. Actually, he had his assistant do the, the work, but the conclusion that they found is of 500 churches, over 96% of them made no mention whatsoever of the return of the Lord or the rapture of the church. And so that gives us an insight into the large majority of churches that are neglecting, perhaps completely neglecting, this whole topic of the end times, and so the people are not being warned about what's coming. And it's tragic because, you know, with all of the things that were warned about in the scriptures, with so many chapters and books of the Bible devoted to this very topic, by just completely overlooking it, not teaching it, not talking about it, people are being robbed of the opportunity that God wants us to have, because just look at all the generations before us that uh, studied these scriptures, but it wasn't for them. There's many things in the scriptures that are specifically for the time of the end, and these warnings were written for the benefit of that generation living at the time of the Lord's return. And I believe that all the evidence shows that we are that generation. And the thing is that that generation is going to see things that no other generation before us has ever seen. In Daniel chapter 12, the angel Gabriel explained it to Daniel and described it as a time of unprecedented trouble. And Jesus also described it in those terms as trouble that has never been before. And so this generation must be prepared and that means our faith must be prepared. And how is our faith prepared? Well, the scriptures tell us faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. That's how faith comes. We have to know the scriptures and understand what they are saying so that when these things come, our faith is not shaken but holds firm. And so if we're not even warned, if we don't even hear the word, then when we see these things coming, it's going to cause fear and confusion, just like for the rest of the world. And it's going to uh, shake and rattle our faith. And that's a very dangerous place to be. What we should be doing is knowing ahead of time. And I believe this is what God has in his heart for his people today, is that we would have some things already settled in our heart. And that takes some doing, that takes some time, that takes not just a day or two, but that takes some time of us 
purposely choosing in our heart, even after hearing the warnings, we go to God and we we just give these things over to Him so that we're, we're making a conscious choice to say, God, I'm putting my life in Your hands. I trust You regardless of what I see happening in the circumstances around me. It's so much better to make that kind of conscious choice in our heart, settling the matter once and for all, so that we cannot be moved, we cannot be shaken. But if all we ever hear about from our pastors, from the pulpits, is happy sermons that talk about good things and pleasant things and avoiding all the uh, disturbing warnings that the Bible gives us, well, then we're not going to be prepared. And when these things come, we could be like those, we could be among those who get so turned around in their thinking, so misled by their leaders, so deceived and in the dark that they think good is bad and bad is good, and it's just so mixed up that they begin actually participating in helping the the mother of all harlots to eliminate the heretics, the Christians, just like what's been happening all throughout history. Now, this whole idea of being hunted down having killer robots hunting for us. I don't know about the killer robots, if that was to be taken literally, or if that's just showing technology generally as technology is being used. We're already seeing that increasingly today as technology is being used for surveillance purposes as every single phone call, email, text message, everything we do, every transaction... The capabilities just keep increasing faster and faster every year, which is giving more and more knowledge, which is more and more power to those very harlots who are running our government. And so they already have today, but they will have even more so in the future access to know basically everything that we're doing. And so in that sense, technology could easily be used to hunt us down, and it would be difficult to escape because uh, having that kind of knowledge, you know, they know where we live, they know where our family lives, they they know everywhere uh, that we might think about going where we've been in the past. Um, they have, uh, as long as we have our little mobile devices on us, uh, they can track us, uh, so they can listen in on our conversations, and they can do that even with the uh, devices turned off. The listening capabilities, from what I understand, are still there even when they're turned off. So we have to separate ourselves completely from all those devices, any kind of technology, if we want to uh, not be uh, listened to or tracked. And so I don't know, maybe the dream is referring to things like that, you know, the facial recognition software and all of that stuff. Or perhaps there are really are going to be robots used in the way that I saw in the dream. It could be. The technology is almost uh, to that level now. As I'm showing in some of these uh, little video clips, robots that are already in existence today. In fact, some of these uh, clips are several years old, and we know how fast technology is advancing. And so I can only speculate about 
how all those things play out, but we can surely see lots of evidence already today. But as to the part about being hunted, there's nothing new about that. That goes all the way back to the days of Nimrod, who was the grandson of Ham, who was the son of Noah. So Nimrod was the great-grandson of Noah, and he was the man who founded the city called Babel, which, by the way, means confusion. And he was the man who led the people to build the Tower of Babel, to make a name for themselves. And so it was from him, from those beginnings, that the whole system of Babylon began. And it was in that same spirit, that spirit of rebellion against God, that this kingdom has continued to operate throughout the ages, manifesting under different uh, names throughout history, but it's always the same spirit. But the Bible describes Nimrod in Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, saying he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Isn't that interesting that the man who founded Babel, which became known as Babylon, this man was known for his hunting skills. And it gets even more interesting because there are legends that were passed down through the Hungarians that Nimrod hunted with the bow and arrow because, according to their legends, he had twin sons whose names were Hunor and Magor, which is also called Magyar. But these two sons were also uh, known for their hunting and their archery skills. And it was from Hunor that we get the whole Hungarian name, which came from the Huns. And there's a famous warrior called Attila the Hun. And these people were known for their skill in hunting and with the bow and arrow. And according to those legends, they attribute it all back to Nimrod. And it is uh, consistent with the way the Bible describes Nimrod. And we find more insights into Nimrod written by the Roman and also Jewish historian Josephus who lived during the first century A.D. Because Josephus described Nimrod as a tyrant who changed the government into tyranny. And he made it his goal to continually turn men away from the fear of God to bring them into greater submission to his power. And so Nimrod is a type of an antichrist figure, substituting himself in the place of God. And so as the founder of Babylon, Nimrod represents the origins of this spirit of Babylon that prevails all the way throughout history, all the way until the end, where we see it in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, the Lord Jesus Christ releases his wrath upon the earth to destroy Babylon. And in the next few minutes, I'm going to be sharing some examples throughout history of how this murderous spirit has continued to operate, continue to hunt down the people of God wherever they're found, but before I do that, I just want to point out that this is that same spirit that is illustrated in Revelation chapter 6, 
verses 1 and 2, and it's presented as a false messiah, the rider on the white horse who presents himself in the imagery of the messiah, but yet it's a false messiah. It's the spirit of Antichrist, and it's the same spirit of Nimrod, that same spirit of Babylon, the mighty hunter who goes forth conquering and to conquer. That's how he's described. He goes forth continually to bring others under submission to his power, and he does so carrying a bow. Yet he operates under cover, and as part of his disguise, he carries no arrows. He presents himself as a man of peace, but yet he is revealed in that passage as a man of war. And as I mentioned, there are many examples of this spirit manifesting throughout the Bible as well as after the Bible was written. And it goes all the way back to Abraham and his son Isaac. Isaac took for himself a wife named Rebekah, and the two of them gave birth to twin sons whose names were Esau, the firstborn, and Jacob. And Esau, the Bible describes as being a great hunter, skilled with the bow and arrow. And that's found in Genesis 25, verse 27, where Esau is described as a skillful hunter, a man of the field. And then later, in chapter 27, verse 3, we find out how Esau hunted, because his father asked him, Please take your weapons your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And so Esau was like Nimrod in that both of them were great hunters, but they were also alike in another way, because Esau was also a harlot. He traded away his birthright as the firstborn. He was heir to the great promises of Abraham that were passed down to Isaac and then on to Esau, except that Esau did not value his birthright. He valued more the hunger that he felt in his physical body. For one meal, he traded away his birthright to his brother Jacob. And when Esau realized that it was too late, that his birthright had been lost and given to his brother, he made an even bigger mistake of determining in his heart that he would hunt down and kill his brother Jacob. And the reason why that's so significant is actually two reasons. First, his brother Jacob is the one whose name was later changed to Israel who then gave birth to twelve sons who became the twelve tribes of Israel. And so this is the birth of a nation of Israel, the people of God. On the other hand, his brother Esau represents the arch enemies of Israel. And through Esau, we get insights into the nature of the people whom he represents, because not only did he disregard and discard his birthright, his God-given blessings. But then upon realizing his mistake, upon realizing the terrible loss that he had incurred by losing his birthright, he shed tears, he was very sad, he had regrets. But that's not the same thing as repentance, because true repentance requires 
making changes in our actions, in our direction, our choices. So Esau never repented. No, he was stiff-necked and hard-hearted and preferred instead to murder the one who was the heir to all the blessings of God. And so by his own choices, Esau made himself the enemy of God. And Esau's mistakes just continue because what happened next was their father Isaac instructed Jacob to go to Rebekah's brother Laban and take for himself a wife there. And so Esau decided he would take it upon himself to do likewise by going to his uncle Ishmael to take a wife from among his daughters. But the difference was Jacob went with the blessings of his father, whereas Esau went out on his own authority. And there we see another pattern of history. This is the way the Spirit continually operates, exalting itself to make itself its own authority. This Spirit refuses to submit to God, refuses to submit to the authority of the Word of God, and prefers instead to make it its own authority. And so Esau joined himself through marriage to the family of Ishmael, which seems appropriate because Ishmael had also been bypassed for the blessings of God, even though he was the firstborn of Abraham. And through Ishmael and his twelve sons came forth all the Arab nations that we see today. And these people are known to be arch-rivals to the people of Israel. But by marrying the daughter of Ishmael, whose name was Mahalath, the descendants of Esau and Mahalath became the worst of the worst of Ishmael's descendants, because the name Mahalath literally means sickness. And so we have a marriage made in hell between sickness and murderous Esau. And what's interesting about that is their descendants became the people of Edom. Edom was a name given to Esau, which means red, because Esau was reddish in color. And the people of Edom were called Edomites, and they were known for their hunting skills, and they were also known for their rebelliousness against the God of Israel, as they preferred instead to worship their own gods. They made up their own false gods and worshipped them. And the Edomites were continually adversaries against the people of Israel. They were eventually attacked and defeated by King Saul, and later again under King David's leadership by Joab. And when they were defeated by Joab, he slaughtered all the men of Edom. But there was one young boy who was of royal lineage in Edom, and his name was Hadad. And Hadad had servants who helped him flee to Egypt, where he was raised in the house of Pharaoh. And later, after David had passed away, Hadad returned to Edom 
and eventually became the king of Syria and became an adversary once again, this time against Solomon. And so when Solomon turned away from God to worship the false gods of all these wives that he took for himself that God told him not to take, God raised up his adversaries and used Hadad the Edomite as one of Solomon's primary enemies. And you might think that this is irrelevant to what I'm talking about today, but no, it's extremely relevant because Hadad the Edomite later, according to Jewish scholars, they believe that Hadad the Edomite later moved to the area of central Italy where he became the ancestor of the Roman kingdom. And I checked this out on my timeline because I like to keep a timeline of all these events and the timing works out perfectly because my timeline shows that the Roman kingdom started in 753 BC according to the Roman calendar and that was just 75 years after the dedication of Solomon's temple. And so there was time there, just enough time, for Hadad, who lived during the time of Solomon, to make that journey to central Italy and to become the ancestor of the Roman kingdom. And it gets even more interesting because according to JewishEncyclopedia.com, the writers of the Jewish Talmud use the name Edom to refer to the Roman Empire. And they have applied every passage of the Bible referring to Edom or Esau to Rome. And so we have a connection here between Esau and his descendant, Hadad the Edomite, to Rome. And we see the same spirit operating through both. And throughout history, we have seen the Jewish people and the Christians persecuted, hunted down by Rome. And in just a few minutes, I'm going to share some specific examples of how Rome did that repeatedly. But before I move on to that, I want to share just a few more examples from the Bible showing that this is an ongoing repeating pattern throughout Bible history. For example... There's a story of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18, and it describes the climate of those days that the prophets of God were being so hunted by the evil king Ahab of Israel that many of them were being killed, and those who escaped only escaped because they fled for their lives and they were hiding out in caves. And there was a man named Obadiah, who was a servant of King Ahab, but he was working like a double agent because he was secretly taking food and water and provision to these prophets and helping them to survive as they hid out in the caves. He had uh, two separate groups of 50 each hiding in two separate caves, and he was risking his own life to take care of them. That's the climate in which um, Elijah was living and operating, and King Ahab had all of his men seeking Elijah to kill him. 
And so Elijah has this conversation there in 1 Kings chapter 18 with Obadiah, in which Elijah says to Obadiah, please go tell King Ahab that I want to talk to him. I want to see him. And now this is at a time, like I said, when Ahab had all his men searching everywhere for Elijah. And so Obadiah was terrified at this request because he was afraid that after he left Elijah and went to tell that to King Ahab, that then the Spirit of God would speak to Elijah and Elijah would then be led into some other place and he would not be found. And then Ahab would turn on Obadiah and kill him. And so he feared for his life. This is the climate in which our forefathers in the faith lived and operated. And there are many other examples. Later, King David was hunted by King Saul. Saul had an army of thousands of people searching for David so he could kill him. And the very same thing happened when Jesus arrived on planet Earth. Even as a baby, the king sent his soldiers out to kill all the newborn babies in that area. And if it was not for the Spirit of God warning Jesus' father Joseph in a dream, Jesus would have been among those who were killed, but he wasn't killed because God showed Joseph to flee to Egypt, and they did. And it was all throughout those days, but also afterwards. And the history of the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire was an ongoing history of persecution, first of the Jews, and then when the Christians came along, they also became a primary target for persecution, torture, murder. All sorts of degrading tactics were used against them. And the facts of history show that these were not isolated events, but it was an ongoing chronic problem that persisted from emperor after emperor. And as I've already shared in a previous program, this one called Constantine, who supposedly converted to Christianity, was a complete fraud because he continued to worship and give honor to his pagan gods all throughout his life, even into the very end of his life. And the evidence also shows that Rome never converted because the emperors after Constantine continued to persecute Christians. Now, why on earth would a Christian empire persecute Christians? Well, it's because they never were a Christian empire. They were then, and they still are today, an anti-Christ empire. And when they finally collapsed upon themselves, the Roman Empire morphed into the Roman Catholic Church. But that same spirit continued to prevail over them, they simply took on a new tactic, a new strategy to pursue the very same thing they had pursued from the beginning, which was to go forth and conquer, to bring everyone into submission to their power. And even though they called themselves a Christian church, they continued to persecute Jews and Christians the same way Rome had always done before. They formalized what they called the Crusades and the Inquisitions, in which they militantly hunted down 
Jews and Christians to have them tortured and put to death. And the reason why I've taken the time to share these historical facts is because I believe a proper historical perspective helps us to see more clearly than ever where we are today and where we're going in the future. And I heard a good analogy someone gave where they said it's like a river, that if you can stand on the bank of a river and look back at where it's come from, well, it's not that hard then to figure out what's going to happen next. You see that same river flowing right in front of you, and then you can look to the other side and see where it's going. It's very predictable as long as you can see where it's come from. But when we don't have a good understanding of where we've come from, then when we hear a warning like what I've shared today about Christians betraying other Christians by uh, sending out killer robots to hunt them down and kill them, well, that sounds so bizarre. But when we understand history, then we know there's nothing at all bizarre about it because these things have been going on for hundreds and even thousands of years. But the problem is, we've been lied to about the past. All the relevant facts of history that would help us to truly understand what's happened and connect it to who's behind it have been whitewashed, removed from all our history lessons. And we've been indoctrinated with a false version of history so that we don't understand anything that's happened, or anything that's happening today, or anything that's going to happen in the future. And we've been led to believe that those things that happened in the past during the Crusades and the Inquisitions, that yes, although those things happened, they're not relevant for us today because they all came to an end and we moved on, we advanced to a higher level, where we know better than to do things like that. We're living in this age of so-called tolerance. But I want to tell you right now that that is a big fat lie. Because the days of the Inquisition and Crusades never came to an end. They just went undercover. They continued doing the very same things as before under a different guise. In fact, the very first thing the Jesuits did after they were reinstated in the Vatican in 1814 is they restarted the Inquisitions. And even today, the office of the Inquisition, it has never been uh, terminated. They only changed the name of it to make it more acceptable to hide what they're doing undercover. So what they did was they changed the name from the Supreme Sacred Congregation of the Roman and Universal Inquisition. In 1908, they changed it to call it the Supreme Sacred Congregation of the Holy Office. And then in 1965, they changed it again. And now they call it the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. But it's the same uh, group It's the same inquisition that's existed for centuries and it's still in operation today 
They've just gone undercover the same way. This has been the strategy of the Jesuits ever since they were reinstated and even before that. They knew that everybody was weary of these wars of religion, so they understood they had to have a new strategy. And that's what I shared in my previous program regarding the French Revolution and how the Jesuits manipulated Freemasonry to do their bidding. And so the deception, the darkness increased as people began to pursue goals, thinking they're doing something noble when in fact they're just doing the bidding of the Jesuits to implement another religious war. And today we don't hear about these things because everything has been whitewashed so that our whole culture today is purely secular. You know, when we hear about world events on the nightly news, we don't hear a word about the religious aspect of it, the spiritual dimensions of it. We're not told that we're engaging in a religious war. Just the opposite. We have these new enemies that have been created, totally fabricated. They're not real. And for over a hundred years in American history, we've been waging war after war against enemies that don't even exist. We've been laying down our lives to fight for what we are being told is the cause of liberty, when in reality, we are being used by the Jesuits to advance their empire. And we've fallen for it, hook, line, and sinker. And I'm talking about the Christians the Christians have fallen for it just like everyone else. And it's because we've been robbed of our historical perspective. We don't even have what you would call a biblical perspective. Because if we study the Bible, it's as clear as can be from Genesis to Revelation. Every war, it's all about God. It's about a war against God. It's about a war in the heavenly realm reflected in the earth realm. Yet today we're being told it's about stopping communism, or it's about stopping fascism, or it's about stopping terrorism. Oh, it's always something, some bad guys out there, and we're the good guys who have to go out there and stop them. And we do it thinking we're fighting in the interests of God, in the name of God, when all along we're being used mightily by Satan. Because communism was a Jesuit creation. Fascism was a substitute for the old monarchies that the Jesuits had controlled. But they didn't like the way it was working out because it was so confining, so limited. Because the only ones who could take the place of the leaders that they assassinated were members of the royal family. They had to have the royal bloodlines. So by bringing an end to the age of the monarchs, the Jesuits have given themselves greater power and control through fascist dictators that they can choose. And then more recently, they created this other phony baloney enemy called terrorism. How do you fight a global war on terror? It's not even a nation. It's not even a people. Terrorism is a tactic. And the terrorists are not out there. The bad guys are not out there. The bad guys are the ones running our government. They are the true terrorists. And they have their sights set 
on who they call terrorists, and that is the Christians and the Jews, the same targets they've always had. They seek to eliminate them because we don't submit to the Pope. And so that makes us heretics. And so they go forth conquering and to conquer, to bring others into submission to their power. It's that same spirit that's operated throughout the ages. And if we only had a biblical perspective, we would know that already. If we only had a biblical perspective, we would understand that every war is fought against God ultimately in the name of God. And that's why the Bible tells us in Revelation 18 that the mother of all harlots is responsible for all who are slain upon the earth. The mother of all harlots is the one who's instigating behind the scenes to manipulate and cause wars. War in the heavenly realm and war in the earthly realm as war is continually being waged against God and therefore against the people of God. And by having that perspective, we would have avoided so much heartache. So many millions of lives that were lost didn't have to be lost because we didn't have to go to war in the first place. So instead of going and fighting wars that were based on lies, what we should have been doing was running these evil harlots out of our land. If the church was operating as the church is meant to operate, we would have been calling them out. We would have put them on the run, and they would have lost their grip. They would have lost their control. But yet, here we are, after decades of this nonsense going on, and even still today, hardly anyone seems to be aware of what's really happening. And so, the enemy continues to advance under cover of darkness. And I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. If you don't believe me, if it sounds too far-fetched to believe it, go and study the Vietnam War that every American knows never made any sense. We were told we were there to stop this evil threat of communism, but it never was about communism. And if you don't believe me, go and study it for yourself, because that's what I did, because when I first heard these things, I thought, this is craziness. But yet I went and studied it. I studied 400 years of Vietnamese history. And what I learned was the Vietnam War started in the year 1615, the day the Jesuit missionaries arrived. And for the next 300 plus years, the Jesuits, with the help of the French military, waged war against the people of Vietnam to bring them into submission to the Pope. And that's the reason why when the United States started fighting there, we took the place of the French who had been there right up until the early 1950s. And that's the reason why the United States Central Intelligence Agency placed in power over Vietnam a Roman Catholic. And when he didn't do according to what they wanted, they replaced him with another Roman Catholic. And the truth is, we were never there to fight the communist North Vietnamese. We were there 
waging war against the South Vietnamese, calling them communist sympathizers, Viet Cong they were called. And so our government implemented this evil, wicked scheme called the Phoenix Program, in which we hunted down the people of South Vietnam to bring them under our power. The whole war begins to make perfect sense when we understand the true nature of it. The Phoenix Program in Vietnam was a nationwide manhunt in which those who were captured were tortured and in many cases put to death. Many innocent people were killed. And it was just a continuation of the Roman Catholic Inquisitions that started in the 12th century and have continued to this very day, today operating under the guise of a global war on terror in which fusion centers have been established in every state in the United States, in which every American is being monitored with the help of high-tech surveillance systems. And so the manhunt continues, but not for the bad guys out there, but for the Christians living here. Well, all right, I think I've gone plenty long enough for one program, so I'm going to stop here for today. And I want to thank you for joining me, and I look forward to being back again with you soon.